we practice the Dhamma in order to see true nature, to see the suchness of things, things as they truly are. So it begins, as I mentioned before, uh, by the awakening of faith, whether prompted or unprompted. Prompted often through practice, whatever mysterious ways we come through pro- uh, to, to a retreat or to some kind of, of spiritual practice, or unprompted, spontaneously arisen, of faith, trust, confidence. This faith opens the doors. It offers the sense of a way, a possibility. Faith is an affirmation that there is a path of awakening. Flowing from this faith is Dhamma energy in the Pali, Wiriya, uh, translated as courage or strength of heart. This energy is the, the activator of the awakening process. It moves it forward, gives it the energy we need, the courage we need in this awakening process. Working very much, uh, as I mentioned, like the sun's rays, that when they combine uh, and fuse with the molecules of our atmosphere, uh, it creates atmosphere, it creates turbulent systems, creates our weather, our experience of many of the natural systems of our home planet. Opening to this totality of things as they are requires a jewel of the meditation practice. Following this energy and uh, the energy itself being a sustaining power of awareness in Nepali, sati. Sati means literally an immediate recognition or immediate recollection, remembering. It implies the ability to be so poised, so anchored in the moment, it's, it's noticing things just as they are, as they're appearing uh, or and vanishing moment to moment. This is how we discover how things are happening. This is how we discover the nature of who or what we are or what is the nature of this life. This is what helps break down the sense of compartmentalization, of seeing the world through uh, fragments or fractures. Seeing the suchness of things is being able to open up to the totality, the rhythms, the natural law. And it's this, this pure mindfulness, this pure sati that affords us this pure perception, this ability to, to attune to things as they are. Immediate remembering or immediate recollection means it's pre-idea. It's before any ideas or concepts we may have of things. This kind of awareness or this kind of attention, mindfulness we call it mostly, is so attuned to the present moment that it is pre-verbal. In this way, it's very subtle and very hard to describe. How would we describe the sky? It would be difficult to describe the sky, yet it's the most predominant feature of our environment. 
But mostly we look at the sky uh, as perhaps contrasted by clouds or birds or horizons or trees. We hardly just notice sky as that, that space surrounding everything. So this, this immediacy of awareness is empty of any preconception, uh, idea. And it's what gives it its definition of immediacy because it's a direct sensing, a direct knowing, a direct feeling awareness of what's happening. And that's why it's difficult to develop, too. We're so tempted to have an idea or a thought, to try to conceive of what's happening. It's hard just to let go into this natural awareness. What is its nature? It's, if it has this pre-symbolic quality, you know, and uh, if it's not thought, do you see how difficult it might be to, to say what it is? Because we have to use thought to say what it is. We can, we can talk about and describe some what it does, but only wisdom, that direct, intuitive understanding that arises from practice, can know really what it is. And, we'll get, and we get a feel for it as the practice moves along, as we relax more into the moment and learn how to rest in this pure awareness. We begin to get a feel of it. Pure, careful, uh, relaxed, yet alert presence of mind. Sometimes it's described in Zen practice as beginner's mind. Same quality, empty of any preformed view or judgment or concept of what's happening. The, the great navigators of Polynesia between 3,000 and 5,000 years ago had to have this, this pure awareness in order to take the great, undertake the great journeys of discovery and exploration that they took because they had to be able to read these turbulent systems. They had to be able to understand the language that these natural systems spoke. And they did. You know, when they, they, they certainly learned how to guide themselves without any instruments using the stars. But they couldn't always see the stars. Many times they were um, uh, becalmed in the middle of the day and a cloud cover over everything. Or day or night, storms could come. They could be cast off course of their star-guided navigation. But they attuned to every conceivable so-called chaotic or turbulent system that existed for them. The wind, the waves, the currents, the rain, they all told a story. And these navigators learned how to read them by this quality of presence of mind, of, of pure awareness, that told stories. They could, they could tell by several kinds of currents that existed, where land might be, how far, how far from land they might be, because they were wind-generated currents, they were what's called ground swells from storms thousands of miles away, creating other kinds of waves, and they were, uh, they were 
uh, currents, uh, great ocean currents like in the South Pacific currents that travel south and around South America and up into the Atlantic. And there are other smaller kinds of cross currents. All these could be happening at the same time. They just paid attention to understand how all these currents operated. They could even taste the salt in the air and tell where they were, or smell scents from, the, uh, from the either the salt or from uh, air-carried molecules from land some hundreds of miles away. They just would attune to all these things. Even at night in a storm, the greatest of these shaman-like navigators could just feel through the vibrations of the boat, these double-hull wooden canoes, the, the messages, the language of these currents. Or they get into the water and hold on to these amas, these, uh, these outriggers, and, uh, and uh, uh, let the lower part of their body go deep, several feet under the water. And with the most sensitive part of their body, they would feel the direction of the current. Or they'd see driftwood coming in a certain pattern and traveling through a certain current and know the direction of land from that driftwood. Or wind-whipped uh, seaweed being carried and know from a different direction where that came from. All from this quality of incredible attentiveness using this awareness of discovery, of observation, just noticing what was happening. If they had any preconceived notion or ideas, if their minds were cluttered with thought or our, our view or opinions, they couldn't hear it, they couldn't see it, they couldn't understand the language. In this way, they discovered the laws of nature, many of the laws of nature many of the most incredible uh, and subtle laws that govern the whole operation of our, of our planet. By just observing what seemed chaotic on the surface, but had a, a very natural, rhythmic, uh, understandable harmony behind the seeming turbulence. They were able to see the interrelatedness of things. This Sati is this quality of present time awareness that's able to begin to reveal the lawfulness of our experience. The harmony, the nature, the order of our very mind and body, everything included. How the elements of the body work, the images and thoughts and emotions, begin, beginning to see their interrelated nature and the causes and effects that are there, uh, that uh, are the cause for their appearance. Abiding in this present time awareness is like attuning to these happenings as they occur like waves, being able to ride the crest of the continuous waves of appearing and vanishing phenomena, just as they're happening in the body, in the mind, through all the sense doors, sights and sounds. This noticing power, this, this culture of immediacy has no agenda, no anticipation 
or expectation of what's happening. In this way, it's no different than surfing. The skilled surfer cannot anticipate his or her maneuver. They have to be very balanced, very present, and then they're able to, to blend with the motion of the wave, become the motion of the wave. Let the wave reveal itself, and then just be that wave through their bodies and the extension of their bodies of their surfboard or their canoe, however they're surfing. And this way, work with the wave. In the same way, this, this mindfulness, this sati, is learning to attune, to accord to these waves of phenomena of the mind and body, riding the crest, attuning to their nature, feeling them, becoming them, understanding them, relaxed, blending with emotion of experience. This is how we come to know the true nature of a breath an image in the mind, an emotion, sensations as they appear and disappear, the phenomena of seeing or hearing. It's pure awareness, this unobstructed, natural, attention, noticing power of mind is not just observing. (coughs) It's not simply observing. In fact, it's a combination of two different qualities of awareness. One is a participating awareness. Participating means that direct, that immediate, that connectedness with what's happening the connectedness with the experience, the wave of phenomena. One feels even at one with it, not separate. And that's combined with, the, with an observing awareness that's detached, it's not identified, that is seen and feeling and sensing just as it is, just as it is in this moment. There's nothing extra. There's no other process, there's no I to whom this is happening. There's a sense of connection, connectedness, oneness with the experience, and this powerful non-identification, detachment, this observing capacity. That's, so it brings the wisdom and understanding of what's happening, so it's not to be lost in it, identified with it. It's the nature of this non-identification aspect of mindfulness. Nature is, is doing nothing. And that's our practice. That's what we come here to do. We come here to do nothing. We come here to learn how to practice to do nothing with full commitment. That's great. How easy is it <laughs> to be just doing nothing? How much permission do we give ourselves? You know, how much do we say, it's okay, I don't have to be doing anything? Do you do anything with the thoughts, with the emotions, the sensations? Is there anything to do with them? 
anything to direct or control, to hold on to, to push away. Get a sense of that pre-verbal, that pre-symbolic nature of mindfulness, of pure awareness. It's so peacefully poised in the moment, just to notice things. That's not a doing. It's a non-doing. Experience can be the sense of oneness with breath, while at the same time not identify with it, just feeling the nature. The sense, the idea, the concept of breath can fall completely away. Some, someone today was saying how they were, all of a sudden it was as if it wasn't them that was breathing. The breathing was just happening. The breathing was just doing itself. Walking. Same thing. There can be a sense of so, an attunement of being so at one with the sensations of walking and the awareness of those sensations of walking. But it seems like no one is doing anything. The sensations of walking are just happening. And someone said they felt that they, it, was, it wasn't them walking. It's like a total stranger. Someone else was walking. It's from the view of this mindfulness, of this awareness, that's what it may seem like. All of a sudden, who is this mind and body? That's just walking along. Not so different, not at all different with images and thoughts as they appear. You know, it could be like the thoughts or images of the person sitting next to you. When that anchored in awareness. That sense of not claiming and not grabbing, not holding. It's just an image. It's just a feeling of fear or joy. This doing nothing with full commitment is a powerful energetic presence. And doing nothing doesn't mean drifting around, lost in the seeming chaos of happening. This energetic presence that's not trying to get anything and not trying to get rid of anything, not trying to attain anything. It's responsive, it's open, it's childlike, childlike wonder, that wonder of discovery. I was just playing with a child today, a four-year-old child. He's so, his energy is so bright. And the other day I was up uh, at the farm he lives down the road and we were out um, uh, hunting bear with his bow and arrow. And there was no points or anything in the end. And uh, he said, I can't hunt. I need a, I need a hunting license. <coughs> so I said, okay, I'll bring you one. So I had a friend today on his computer make this amazing hunting license. When I got it, it looked so real. I was afraid to sign it, you know. <laughs> I said, well, what, what name shall I sign it? I don't want to sign my own name. I just made up a name, you know, Errol McLaughlin. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it said Worcester County Hunting License. You're entitled to hunt uh, bear and, and all these animals, right? So I took it up. I gave it to him today. He was, 
she was incredulous. She was so delighted, you know, to get this hunting license. We had to read it to him, of course, but it was uh, that childlike wonder and openness and, 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 and gratitude. He said, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve Smith, he calls me. Thank you. This present-time awareness, uh, two examples of, of present-time awareness masters that have this same childlike wonder, e- even though uh, one of them is in his mid-70s and, and the other died recently at 95. Uh, one of them is Saida Upandita, teacher you've heard us speak about. Um, now, now he, he displays this sati in, a, in his own unique way. Um, He's a very formidable type of person. He's like coming toward a big mountain, you know, and, uh, and sitting before communicating with this big force. And he's, um, uh, um, he's, he's not really, he doesn't engage in kind of general conversation, you know, doesn't like say, well, how are you doing today, kind of thing. doesn't make that kind of contact. It's, He's looking at you, it's like he's just looking at your mental factors. And <laughs> <laughs> he's just looking to see if your, if your uh, enlightenment factors are imbalanced. You know, you got the, is the energy, investigation, and joy there? And uh, is the, is the uh, calm, concentration, equanimity there? And that's what he's kind of tuning into. He's not tuning into, you know, Steve or Carol or Michelle. Doesn't, that doesn't faze him. This style of sati we could call serious sati. <laughs> Yet he has the same in, incredulous wonder, you know, an energetic presence of mind. It was, uh, I especially appreciated this in his own turf, you know, at home in his monastery, where he's so finely meticulous about everything. You know, just watching him put on the robe in, in just the right way, in the right distance and and that they're clean and they're, that they're neat. And his, his deep and genuine concern with the, the, the dignity and the integrity of wearing these robes and what they mean. Just watching him do that, arrange and care for his own or others around, how he would help arrange my robes when we had to put them in sort of dress mode before going out of the monastery. Um, or how he'd, how'd he care, how he'd care for his books. I mean, he'd treat them like jewels and carefully take them out of their shelf, you know, dust them off, open them up and go to the page he wanted to, you know, not turning the pages and being really, really careful, delicate, respectful of these Dhamma gems, the teachings that are encased in them. Uh, and, and how he would replace them again, you know, just not lying around. Um, and and that was just, that's, that's just his style. He just, he's in that role. It's a sense of, of reserve uh, with him in that way. He's not exactly what you call the touchy-feely type. You know, I, can, I can count on one hand how many times he, he ever touched me, you know, like a, when I couldn't find a, a place to sit once in the dining hall in our main meal, he came up and you know, I was nearly shocked to tears when he, I felt his, a firm grip on my arm. 
and he guided me to a place to sit. I'll never forget that. It's like seeing Mahasi smile, Mahasi Sayadaw. This, uh, this uh, Mr. Void, this, uh, the teacher, <laughs> the teacher of uh, Upandita, and some of us when he was alive too. Another example of this, of this sati, of a present-time awareness master, um, was this ma- man, Paul Reps, who I mentioned a few weeks ago, um, who went to India in about 1915, when he was just a teenager, and, and, and settled in the Himalayas, when you could still hear the Bengal tire, uh, tigers roaring. And so he had that many years of practice behind him. And his style was very different. Um, I remember a story once when he lived in Japan, which he did, because much of his practice was, um, was Zen-oriented. And he'd, he made his living, uh, he was an artist as well, sumie, uh, paint, uh, black ink, uh, calligraphy. He'd, he'd make some calligraphy, black ink on paper, and some little thing underneath he'd write sometimes. It just, just something would come out, look like a potato and look like a little man in it, and he'd write reps sitting in a potato. And he'd, he'd put it up on a clothes hanger, and, um, and you'd have another one next to it, and you'd have a fan blowing it against them. So they moved back and forth. This is in the streets of Kyoto. And a sign said, living art, you know, as these things <laughs> blowing back and forth. And under one it said, rich people, a hundred dollars. Students and poor people, free. <laughs> His brand of sati, we could call playful sati. Uh, he lived with Michelle and Chandra and I uh, one year, about 10 years ago. He was 87 at the time. Um, Chandra was eight. And she, was, of course, was, was very odd uh, with this man. He came, he showed up in a day pack, small little day pack. All his possessions were in that day pack and carrying a folding lawn chair. <laughs> that was all he had. He walked into our house, ready to move in, came into our kitchen, stood in front of our refrigerator. The first words in our house were, there's the enemy. And we learned right away not to ask him what he meant <laughs> by any of these things. And we've been still, you know, 10 years later, for me, was it because of the freon gases or, <laughs> you know, it burns all the electricity or it spoils the food or Michelle thought, well, maybe it's because that since the invention of the icebox, we haven't shared food in the way we did in, in older times. Don't know. <laughs> He came up to Chandra and said, what do I do with this? And it was a papaya rind, right? He'd just eaten papaya off her papaya tree. And she said, well, there's a, well, Reps, because he liked to be called, he called himself Reps uh, by his last name. He says, well, Reps, there's, a, there's a, a compost pile in the corner of our yard. And he, without a moment's hesitation, he said, there are no corners. <laughs> <laughs> And Chandra also learned very quickly <laughs> not to ask him what he meant. I mean, who knows? You know, no, no right angles in the universe or something? I don't know. And uh, his, his playfulness was such that he, he, was, he was really good at reading mind states through people's posture. 
I really love that for some reason, you know. And so right away he had us working on our own posture and breath and, you know, movement and exercise and so forth. He himself one day asked me to, um, to construct a chin-up bar for him. I said, chin-up bar? You know, this is an 87-year-old man. He's barely get his arms up. <laughs> I said, okay, rep. And he said, use this. And he pulled out a stick of bamboo that he got from our backyard, a flimsy old stick of bamboo. <laughs> and he wanted, it, he wanted it nailed on the edge of the, the roof, right in front of his room, uh, on, the, on the deck there. And I said, uh, okay, I'll put it up. And just recently, I was just repainting our, our house, and I saw the old nail there, one of the nails from it. And I, I just painted around it to leave it there. <laughs> Uh, so I did. I put two nails, and and um, and I was gonna, and I put the um, the bamboo pole up there, and then I was gonna really wrap it and make it strong. But once I just set it on there loosely, he said, "No, no, no, that's all. Just want it. Just let it sit up there. Just natural. Don't tie it. No more nails. No straps." I said, "Okay, rep." <laughs> and there it is. <laughs> so then I went away, and I was kind of peeking out later, <laughs> watching what he'd do. And what he'd do, he'd just reach up and grab onto the bamboo and just kind of go like <laughs> that <laughs> to get his arms up and hold on to something. So when, so when people would come by, you know, he'd, he'd just, he hadn't even be introduced, be ready to say, well, reps, this is, and he'd say, before we could say their name, he'd say, have you always been standing that way? <laughs> Put your shoulders back. Now lift your arms up. Now stretch all the way up. Now open your toes. Down. Reach up a little more. Now bring them down. Bring them in front of you. Bring them down. Once again, up. Stretch. Down. Bring them down. Shoulders back. Now take a deep breath. Maybe Billy would take a really deep breath. You know, He'd say, that's the first real breath you've ever taken in your life. <laughs> Same thing if they, someone came in and sat down and he'd immediately go into their posture in some way and say, you know, are you depressed? <laughs> well, what's wrong with you? So, he, he, of course, he became an enigmatic curiosity. Our friends couldn't wait to come and see them. <laughs> but they'd be so nervous and contracted coming over to meet him <laughs> that they'd just be a setup, you know, for him. <laughs> What's wrong with you today? <laughs> His playful sati uh, is uh, sort of epitomized. Uh, um, as I mentioned before, he was so, so open. You know, even after 70 years of awareness practice, he was very impressed by this Vipassana practice. In one of his last books he wrote while living with us, inspired by the Vipassana practice, uh, uh, kind of books that he really handmade. He, you know, he had like 20 books or so published by Tuttle or something, but he was sick of the way their print was so small. <laughs> and so he did it his own way with big print and had it personally printed. And actually there were six little books uh, that he put together and hand had hand-bound and then put them in a manila envelope, which he had printed up with one of his Sumier calligraphy drawings and called Six Books in a Bag. Um, he's, so he, he came to our twice weekly sittings 
one day he was just finishing with his sitting because he didn't think we should sit for more than 30 minutes. Uh, and we sat for 45. So about 30 minutes, 35, that would be enough. He'd get up, start folding his lawn chair, and walk through the kitchen, swinging kitchen door, cross the other side of the kitchen into his studio room. This day, as he was getting up uh, and folding the chair, he started to trip against a little a low coffee table that he was sitting next to. And for a, a, a delicate, fragile person of 87, it takes a while to do anything, including falling. You know? So he hits this and he starts to fall. He starts to use his lawn chair to break the fall, but it continues to fold. You know? So it doesn't really break the fall. So then somehow he spins around, and he must have been very agile. He, he spins around, and he, he falls into the kitchen door. But of course, the kitchen door is a swinging kitchen door. <laughs> so that still swings. He's, he's got this, he's still using his lawn chair to try to break falls. That comes in, it hits, the, it hits all the pots and pans and the dishes <laughs> next to the sink. And so they go scattering into the sink and goes around by the stove and there's more hanging pots. It hits that. Somewhere in there he lets go of the chair. Now, unbeknownst to all of us at the time, eight-year-old Chandra and her, her little friend are in there sneaking a cookies and juice party. <laughs> and they're sitting right in the middle of the kitchen floor. So he continues to fall. <laughs> and by the time I got up, you know, and was kind of rushing to, to go and, and help him, he had fallen. But in the moment of impact on the cookies, <laughs> all we hear, and this is, you know, he's right in the moment, he says, oh my gosh, I've fallen into a party. <laughs> no injury. quality, this, this quality of awareness, this awareness that's um, a very special awareness because it is, it's, a, it's occurring at a very special pitch. It's just that pitch that is able to attune to now. It's not in the past. If it has anything to do with the past, it's reflective. Or anything to do with the future, it's also reflective or discursive. It's so attuned to the moment. It's so ordinary in a way. It's so natural in a way. Yet it's so difficult. And it's a mirage to assume that it's easy and that, it's, uh, uh, and that we're always able to do it. The idea is easy, but it's very difficult to relax. It's very difficult to let go in this present time awareness. The force of mind that wants to do something about experience, that is a doing, takes over very quickly. In the Buddhist Pali, we call this papancha. Papancha means proliferating mind, fabrication of mind. 
embellishment of experience. It dresses, it dresses things up immediately. It dresses experiences up immediately to appear irresistible or repulsive, you know, or whatever judgment we might give it. Proliferating thoughts masquerade as sati, as mindfulness. So what happens, every moment of experience, there's some impression. There is a mental impression of an image or memory or fantasy or idea. There are all the other impressions of light waves, sound, sensation, uh, smell and taste. In actual reality, there is this, this bare attention, this bare awareness, receiving this bare impression on the level that we've been talking about this sati. It's so quick, it's so fleeting, that without the training that's, that's nurturing this culture of immediacy, this quality of sati, the mind proliferates very quickly. That is, from that initial impression, it becomes a concept, maybe just a single concept, but very soon constructs, groups of concepts. And then all in a twinkling, all in just a fraction of the second it takes to blink an eye, it becomes interpretation, ideas, schemes, something that we're then judging or reacting to. It's describing, it's interpreting, uh, it's commenting, it's explaining about this phenomena. Just as an experiment, Notice everything you can notice while, while actually trying to just be totally attentive to sound vibration when I ring the bell. And try to just rest in this non-doing awareness, not doing anything but letting the vibration, the waves of sound appear and enter your experience. vibration and the awareness of it. But alongside, or right next to, right piggybacking on those moments, there might have been little thoughts, little thoughts describing it, you know, or saying, don't think, or saying whatever that wants to say, little ones or big ones. That's re- it was, it's extremely difficult to have stayed perfectly attuned to that sound vibration. So the tendency is to experience things with this papancha mind in the same way as we, try, as we experience the moon through the clouds. There's a distance rather than a depth. Pure sati has a nature of sinking right into or blending with experience and feeling it at the heart, at the core. The masquerades, these, these little papancha thoughts that, that somewhat taint the pureness of awareness, 
wants to do something, evaluate, assess, connect in some way. An image from the text is uh, throwing a cork and a stone into a little stream. The cork has a tendency just to float on the surface, be carried away by the stream, whereas the stone sinks right into the heart, goes right into the core or the heart of the current to experience it as it is. It's hard to just see as it is when this papancha is strong. This proliferation all also leads to what we call yogi mind a lot. You know, some simple impression or experience happens and immediately the mind wants to build on it, do something with it. Michelle and I were teaching in Australia a few years ago and after a Dhamma talk, we came out of the hall and once out of the hall, we could go into another door, cross the walking room into the room I was staying in. I did that. Michelle was kind of just walked out and was looking at the stars and the moon. And she walked around back, you know, and before going up her room, she came in to talk about what we were going to do the next day, but she came through another door. I, now I thought she was just behind me. So I went in, went across the walking room, went into my room, I sitting there for a moment, left the door open for her to follow me, but all of a sudden she came in the back door. And I said, oh, why did you come in that door? Now, when I, just in the moment I said that, a yogi was coming in the door to the walking room. You know, and my door was still left open. And these little words, little waves of sound, did their thing, went through the air, and they entered his ear door, but he didn't experience it as just hearing. In fact, he experienced it as something that was being said to him. Why did you come in that door? As, he, as you know, that's how he heard it somehow. Um, I mean, I said it nicely. Why did you come in that door? Yeah, I said it pretty nicely. But, <laughs> <laughs> but this was like after the Dhamma talk. So this is this is 8:30, quarter to nine. At 4:30 the next morning, there was a knock on my door, and that, and I say yes. And this voice says, Steve, are you awake? <laughs> and I say, well, <laughs> yes, I am now. Come on in. And it was this yogi who had just been <laughs> tormenting himself all night. Why did, I tell, why did I say to him, why did he come in that door? <laughs> he was judging himself. And you know, it was so open and so sensitive and so raw, like we get in retreat, that, oh, you know, it was so terrible to see this, it just seemed so injured. <laughs> Yogi mind, I mean, this is how we can easily proliferate. This papancha is rooted in, in unknowing, the root of unknowing. Doesn't, that, 
that factor of, of delusion, not seeing things clearly, not, not experiencing things clearly. Only wisdom has the power to dispel this darkness of delusion, of unknowing. Mindfulness has the function of bringing the field of experience into focus so we can see clearly. It steps behind the curtain of concept to begin to see as it is, to see suchness as it is. When it brings things into focus like this, it, it gives access to wisdom, to intuitive understanding. It gives access to that illumination that dispels unknowing. At first, when we practice, we might feel a distance from what's happening, insulated from it. When, when one first begins to kayak, which I do a lot around here, it's the closest thing to surfing in, in this land here. And in first getting into a kayak, you feel distant, you feel separate from the current. You can't feel the current very well through the kayak, through the boat. But in time, with experience, it's as if the boat starts to be an extension of your body. You know, it's no longer a, 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 an insulation. You start, one begins to be able to feel the current, the energy of the current through the boat and learn to attune to the flow of the current of, this, of, the, of the river, to play with it, to play with the waves and the, and the holes and the eddies and so forth. Relaxed, detached, calm, that, that non-doing doesn't want to do anything with experience. The papancha, the masquerade of mindfulness, it, it doesn't want to accept, say, fear or anger. It's not okay. It doesn't want to feel it. It wants something else. It either wants it to go away or it wants calm. It wants equanimity. This is where you see metta in the heart of mindfulness because it's the accepting quality of metta that allows in this mindfulness practice to accept experience as it is. And the skillful means of working with what comes up is the immediate recognition and that's the, the uh, immediate recollection or remembering nature of sati. And then it's to accept that it's there. That doesn't mean submit to it. It means neither repressing it nor indulging it, acting it out. It means to allow it to be there for that moment because that feeling it, feeling awareness of it is what allows it to follow its own nature, allows us to understand. So the recognition of it, the acceptance of it, and then the investigation, disidentification. Disidentification is also a natural function of sati. You can't try to disidentify. That itself is usually some kind of identification. But as we explore, as we feel the nature of the arisen state, say it's fear or anger, the very exploration, investigation of it is the condition for that detachment, that disidentification. 
skillful means. A 12th century great Zen master, Dogen, said, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. But myriad things coming forth and experiencing themselves is awakening. When we'd finish meals, uh, our main meal at the monastery in Burma, uh, I'd sometimes be invited up to Sayadaw Upandita's cottage. And that would be uh, at about 11 o'clock, and we'd maybe have an hour there where we'd enjoy delicacies. Little squares, cut squares of mango or papaya, grapes, uh, um, kiwi fruits, special fruits from Upper Burma, uh, maybe some nuts, um, uh, often some chocolates. Every once in a while, someone would bring in some ice cream and tea. And there would be three, four, maybe five other monks. Uh, and when I first was invited to this, it was one of the, a horrid experience because the, the kind of the flavor of it, the set and setting, was like a Japanese tea ceremony. But there was no training for it. You know, it's like just sort of pushing someone into the water and telling them to swim. So I would, I would come to these things at, at the beginning feeling really nervous because it was obvious that they were just sitting there doing nothing. Just sitting there drinking tea or having these delicacies, little forks where they'd stab the fruit and eat it. Uh, and, and there was no pretension. There was such a natural flow. And very little was said. Every so often, one of the elder monks might make some comment. But there was often no response. The comment was just made. There was no sense of social courtesy. Yet the whole flavor and surround was one of this extraordinary care and metta. In fact, it was this combination of, of metta and mindfulness, care and detachment. Powerful combination. And so my efforts to try to be natural and relax <laughs> made me so nervous. And the first time I went, this was, it, was, it was hot season, as it was. But I was so nervous that sweat was pouring out of every pore of my body. And, and it, was, it would drench my robe. It would be so soaked with sweat that when I left, I felt so embarrassed. I thought, gee, I must smell and look. I have to go and change my robes, you know, after bathing. And my mind was even sweatier. <laughs> you know, I was so beside myself. And yet, I'd be invited back. And there would just be this, this, this aura of, it's okay. You know, I, no sense of judgment. Still, there was the care. Still, tea would be offered. And delicacies would be offered if, if my plate was empty. And even if I bungled it, which I often did when I was beginning very nervous, you know, I'd take my little hors d'oeuvre fork <laughs> and poke the mango, soft enough as it is, or the papaya, even worse, you know, it's really soft. And I'd be bringing it like this and it'd drop right into my tea, right? <laughs> Splash over. 
But in time, it was all right. You know, it was just whatever happened was okay. We were all just sitting there doing nothing with full commitment, full commitment, this energetic presence of mind, this beautiful com- composition of care and detachment, presence. Myriad things come forth. This experience that we call life, this mind-body phenomena, these rhythms, this, this natural law behind all things that we're discovering, this, this order behind this seeming turbulent or chaotic system upon first appearance when we look at the mind and body. The causes and conditions that bring up whatever comes up, either detachment or greed, wanting, metta or uh, anger, envy, jealousy, joy, all conditioned things, all phenomena, all dhammas, from the perspective of mindfulness, not judging any one of them, just seeing their causes, seeing their nature, what effect they have on consciousness, what insight they may have on what kind of a life it creates for us and those around us, but without a single judgment about it, without trying to control it. We're either caught in the moment in this papancha, in Mara's web of forgetfulness where we identify with the anger or the fear, with what's happening, solidify, contract behind it, feed it perhaps, act it out before finally being aware of it, or anywhere along the line there, we remember. We come back to sati. We come back to this present time awareness. And then just attune to the nature of the experience. Ah, anger. Just anger. It's recognize it, it's accepting it. It's not, oh no, anger. Just anger, just fear. And then the feeling of its quality, its nature, its characteristic, how it colors consciousness, how it perhaps affects the body. And what is it? Is it just a wall? Is it a a, a long, unbroken uh, experience, wall of anger? Or is it in fact moments of anger, appearing and vanishing? Mindfulness here combined with wisdom sees as it is, just as it is. And that becomes, in fact, the condition for transformation, the condition for things to do what they're inclined to do all the time, fall away, particularly the visitors, the visitors of, of attachment and aversion and envy and jealousy, fear. Sometimes it's only the slightest the slightest little adjustment. You know, and this is where our, little, uh, our effort must be so careful and so subtle. Because more often than not, we're trying too hard. Trying too hard. Sometimes Sayadaw would instruct someone, just stand by the wall. Look at the wall. And don't do anything. The slightest little adjustment. We, we had the capacity, someone told me, 
to fly the huge planes that we do now decades ago, long time ago, back in the 40s or earlier, I don't know. But we couldn't turn them. And then someone invented something called a trim tab, which is a very small little thing on the tail of the plane at first. It was just a little, like a rudder on the, on the tail of the plane, a very small little thing that turned one way. And that turning that one way turned the huge big rudder or tail wing the other way. And big planes could suddenly fly and turn. All we need is some trim tabs now and again. The slightest little shift, little adjustment of tension, energy shift, focused, relaxed, open, for immense effect. So here in the retreat, it starts to get that subtle. You know, no more big push or um, uh, huge pulling back, but just little approaches and withdrawals. Skillful approach, skillful withdrawal, skillful sidestepping, these kind of maneuvers. And we begin to recognize now, and summing up here, what is true mindfulness and what is the masquerade. Begin to recognize that if, if there's this, this flavor of agenda or picking and choosing, if, if there's a striving for results, or getting rid of or rejecting or not accepting, the sense that anger isn't okay, is bad or wrong, if we feel disconnected from experience, if we feel the weight of thought, then that's what we're attending to in that moment or what we're trying to see out of, that lens, is not true sati. And the scene of that is often, even usually, the cause for that to fall away and true sati to arise. If instead there is this uh, sense of connection and non-attachment, if there's that quality of acceptance, where anger becomes just anger, unpleasant, but okay. If there's a sense, quality of lightness, of energeticness, the lightness of that, that empty space or doing nothing, pre-verbal, resting in the moment, that is your sati. That's the true sati. One last little anecdote that might describe uh, the sati, its nature of being really a soft focus. When Michelle and I were teaching some years ago in South Africa, in between retreats we were invited by a student to a game reserve in Botswana where they are conserving and protecting this uh, 15,000 acre um, uh, natural wilderness with all the African, great African beings. Um, while we were there, we were, we were with a guide, a Botswana tracker. And this, this tracker, he sprung from the land. I mean, he was the land. 
He knew the land so well. He, he felt like the land. He looked like the land. That, uh, yet in the beginning, we couldn't believe that he was a tracker because he seemed so relaxed, you know? And my idea of a tracker was someone like a, you know, Western a scout, you know? The Western idea of you know, always on the lookout, looking there, and it's the field glasses <laughs> like this, you know? But this guy was so laid back. So we're, we're going out into the bush, looking for this, the, for all, you know, looking and finding all these amazing beings. And I didn't think we would find anything. So, you know, I had my camera lens, you know, constantly focusing in to see, find zebras and wildebeest and leopards and giraffes and uh, eagles and all the animals. Uh, and this guy, Lapata was his name. He's just sitting in the back, you know, like he's having a good time, enjoying this jeep ride. And um, then, then it was time to eat, and, and Michelle had this basket of sandwiches and fruit. The, the very unpretentiousness of this person was what won me over. We stopped, and then Michelle offered the basket for him to take some fruit and sandwiches. This beautiful man just took the whole basket. <laughs> you know what? Thank you. And just started, started eating. And just kind of pulled his hand up there. Look and look and focus in. And finally, oh yeah, there's a zebra. Finally see it. Finally see it. Maybe minutes after, you know, he's saying, it's just over there. Okay. Can't you see it? It's over there. And then again, we'd be driving along and... Uh, kind of, you know, really relaxed. And he'd say, oh, over there. Never say what it was, by the way, just point. And again, I'd strain and strain and strain, and, you know, these creatures are so perfectly camouflaged. And out of the bush, you know, would come an impala with all its spots, you know, leaping, or uh, an eland, or a wildebeest, or a lion, you know, in all its pride and power. I couldn't figure out how this guy was, was seeing me, was seeing these things. And then it suddenly dawned on me that he wasn't looking for anything. He's of the land, right? So he's just, with a very soft gaze, he just scans the horizon and notices the slightest shift in the landscape shift in light and shadow, shift in form. He doesn't even see the animal first. He just sees a pattern. It's like that initial impression, that pure sati, pure awareness, notices before it proliferates into concept, construct, interpretation. And he was picking that up on that level. He'd see the form and color, the light and shadow, and then later it would, I mean, a few seconds, many seconds later, it would be the giraffe that it was, or the cheetah that it was. Soft gaze of the beginner's mind. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.